When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Political pundits are supposed to put forward strong opinions. That's their job. The rest of us may be confused and uncertain and anxious, but the pundits are full of conviction and arguments. Today, we're going to depart from that rule and talk to Rick Perlstein. He's done a gut check about him and Bernie Sanders, who he's been a supporter of for decades. Also, the Cold War was fought in many ways. It was a traditional political and military confrontation, but it was also a cultural contest on a global scale. And one of the most important arenas in that cultural contest was sports. Robert Edelman will have that story. But first, today we're thinking about Super Tuesday next week and about Michael Bloomberg. And for that, we turn to Jeet here. Of course, he's national affairs correspondent for The Nation. Jeet, welcome back. Good to be here. Well, Bloomberg's strategy, of course, was to skip the first primaries and caucuses and focus on Super Tuesday. We're now coming up to Super Tuesday, and recent polls show him doing surprisingly well, surprising to me anyway, a strong second to Bernie in several of the Super Tuesday states. Some of the polls have him second in California and Texas and North Carolina. There's also Virginia and Massachusetts. Some have him third. And at least some of these polls came after his disastrous performance in that first debate of his in Nevada. Let's talk about how he got this far and how much it's cost him. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think Bloomberg is running a campaign that really has no precedence in American history. He has uh, spent, uh, I believe, like uh, at least $400 million, uh, maybe close to half a billion dollars. And to get a sense of the scale, like the, that's like 10 times more than the next highest candidate Bernie Sanders has spent. He's done it through advertising. I'm sure your listeners uh, have uh, seen these um, Michael Bloomberg ads. Uh, I think there's a comedy sketch where he's saying that you can now see ads within ads. That uh, there's so many Bloomberg ads that even the ads are carrying ads. And that's given him, you know, name recognition. And a lot of people who watch these ads, which are very strongly anti-Trump, and think, oh, this is a guy to fight Trump. We're really going to see whether those voters show up. I mean, like, I think it's a real, like, uh, gamble whether, like, people who are convinced by a TV ad are going to be the ones that show up as against the people who are coming in through, you know, Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or even Joe Biden, who are, like, going to be, you know, have... um, uh, some contact with the candidate uh, going to rallies or or uh, being um, encouraged to vote by uh, a local congressperson. The, Bloomberg's um, whole approach is very different. The debate performance was unanimously regarded as a disaster, but the effect doesn't seem to have been disastrous. Why, why do you think uh, he has come out of it still in pretty good shape? Well, I, I'm not so sure about that. I mean, like I, I, as I said, I think that we're going to have to see. I do feel like there are some more recent polls that are showing him like sort of singing to third behind uh, Warren, um, and that Warren has come out of the debates better. I mean, I, I think we're really going to have to see. But I do think that the, the, that sort of name recognition, I think there's a lot of hunger for people 
among the more moderate wing of the party for a candidate who's not Bernie and not Warren. Uh, you know, like Bloomberg, if you only know him through the ads, seems very plausible. I think he's also actually gotten a lot of support from within the party. Some of it, one might cynically say, is coming from candidates that he's given money to or political organizations that he's giving money to. Uh, but some of it also seems like genuine, like from people who, you know, like really want a moderate to go against Trump and think Bloomberg is the best bet. Well, he does have some great billboards. We've seen the pictures of them. Some of this is also on social media. He's got a giant billboard in Las Vegas before the caucuses there. Donald Trump cheats at golf. And that's all it says. And then it says below it, actually. I think it says, and Michael Bloomberg doesn't. <laughs> I don't know if, like, this is the, uh, is this the criteria that we want to select a president? <laughs> I mean, I think it points to maybe Bloomberg's own weakness as a candidate. I mean, the whole argument is that he's a real billionaire rather than Trump, who's a fake billionaire. But, you know, for some of us, the problem with Trump is not that he's a fake billionaire, but he is the candidate of billionaires. He, yeah. he represents the economic interests of the elite. And so I don't think Bloomberg, like, you know, solves that problem. So the moderates, as you have said, need a candidate to oppose uh, uh, Bernie. Uh, they have a lot of choices uh, this week before Super Tuesday. They have really too many choices. It's certainly helping Bernie if they divide the moderate vote among them. And therefore, there's a lot of pressure now that Amy Klobuchar should drop out, Pete should drop out. Do you have any wisdom to offer the moderates on how they should consolidate their opposition to Bernie? Well, I mean, it's almost, I feel like it's almost like too late. Like, I, I feel like if I were like a Machiavelli who was advising the moderates, I would have done it like a year ago saying like, you know, Bernie came in second last time, but that puts him in a good position to win. So you, if you really don't want Bernie, you have to pick a candidate, you know, and like, you know, get everyone out, clear the lane, get all your forces behind it and don't pick a billionaire because that's only going to like strengthen uh, the, the, the argument for Sanders. You know, like I, I think, I mean, I think Bloomberg, I think you're exactly right that Bloomberg's entry has helped Bernie. Uh, and it's kind of mystifying because I think it's, it's clear if you look at the math that that's what's happening. So why is Bloomberg doing this unless maybe Bloomberg is a secret socialist? I don't know. Well, you know, you say the, the, the so-called moderates, let's call them the Democratic Party establishment, the Wall Street wing of the party. They should have consolidated a year ago. Well, actually, they did try to make Joe Biden the heir apparent of Obama and the moderate candidate. That seems to have been a mistake. Yeah, I th I think that the, that was a problem all along, and I think uh, the uh, and I think the people closest to Biden knew that. I mean, it, it's very telling that only a few of the old Obama people have joined the Biden campaign. I I mean, I think Biden, you know, he has many admirable qualities, and he does really represent that wing of the party. Uh, or I mean, I think he is actually a generic. You know, like he's a sort of um, as close as you can get us to being, you know, what a generic Democrat could be. But on the other hand, you know, like. He's um, younger than Bernie, but he doesn't seem younger than Bernie. He, he's, you know, people have seen the deport, debate performances, their problems. And also, he's not a very vigorous campaigner. I honestly think, like, voters are going to look at them and think, you know, we're going against Trump. We want somebody who's going to, like, you know, be able to give him all and, like, hold huge rallies and campaign. And this is, frankly, is already a problem with Hillary Clinton. And I, I don't know if you want to go with a candidate that has less energy than Hillary Clinton. The bedrock case for Bloomberg is that with his money, he can beat Trump. What do you do you think there's evidence for that? Well, uh, the sort of basic problem with that is 
that Hillary Clinton had a lot more money than Donald Trump did in 2016. I mean, Trump had fundraising problems, uh, and you know, uh, but he got away with it because he, you know, got a lot of free TV coverage uh, because of his antics, and he was able to override the money advantage. So uh, it's been tested, and I don't think it's going to work. And I think, like, if you look at the Bloomberg stuff, I mean, yeah, like running a giant billboard that says, you know, Donald Trump cheats at golf. I don't know if that's going to be, you know, what's going to drive out uh, people of color, young people. Like, <laughs> I just, uh, I'm kind of skeptical that this is uh, the the way to do it. I mean, I, I think money can give you a place on the debate stage. It can probably get you, you know, 15, 20, 25 percent in the primaries. Is, is, it, is it something that can win a presidential election? I don't think so. Then there's kind of a deeper question, which you took up in a piece at thenation.com. If Bloomberg became the candidate somehow, what would become of the Democratic Party? That is, for me, the real existential question. Like, I, I, mean, I don't think Bloomberg is going to be the nominee, but uh, like, let's imagine that if he does. So this is a candidate who, you know, was a Republican for a while, and not just a while. Like, he, you know, was a Republican mayor of New York City, uh, endorsed George W. Bush. He didn't endorse Obama in 2008. He did in 2012, but later in 2016, he gave a speech in front of uh, Wall Street uh, friends where he said he should have endorsed Romney. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and he's given money. In 2016, he gave money to a Republican senator, Pat Tommy, to win re-election at like $12 million. And so it was a major factor in trumping out to keep a Republican House uh, and also, like, you know, put Brett Kavanaugh on the uh, Supreme Court. And he gave money to Republicans again in 2018. Now, he'll say, like, he does that because he's interested in gun control and wants moderate Republicans. But he's acting like a special interest. And it's okay for, like, a gun control group to give money to both parties. It's okay for Planned Parenthood to give money to both parties if it finds pro-choice Republicans. But Michael Bloomberg is running to head the Democratic Party. He's not a special interest. He's, you know, he's a party member. And that really separates him out from the other rich candidates who have run. I mean, like, you know, we've had Roosevelt and Kennedy and among Republicans and Nelson Rockefeller. But all those guys worked within their own parties. They rose within the ranks, right? They And they earned party loyalty by campaigning for other people and by working within the party. Bloomberg is going to be a candidate if he's the nominee who's like only there because of his money and the sort of support that he's purchased. Uh, so it's like, it'd be like a sort of, you know, a hostile takeover or not even hostile, but takeover. He's buying the Democratic Party the same way he would buy a mansion or a yacht. Well, uh, Nate Silver's uh, research at 538.com now gives Bernie a 50-50 chance of getting more than 50% of the delegates coming into the Democratic National Convention. And that would give him the nomination. And the second most likely outcome, according to 538.com, is that nobody gets a majority. Uh, let us let us review what happens then. Uh, what happens in a brokered convention? And is that really Bloomberg's plan all along here? Yeah, I, I think that there's some indication that that is the plan. But I, for what, am mystified. I, I think the listeners might remember there was talk of a brokered convention or a convention fight among the Republicans in 2016. And there's a reason why those things don't happen, which is that it's suicide for a party to do that, right? <laughs> like, it's suicide for a modern political party to, like, you know, thrash it all out at a convention and have all the factions lose. And then in this scenario, the candidate who would have gotten the most votes 
and uh, most delegates uh, would be denied it. Like, let's imagine if Bernie got 45% of the pledged delegates, right? Like, are we really going to say that, like, we're going to not give it to him and give it to somebody who got, like, 30% of the pledged delegates? Like, how does that make sense? How does that not create a situation where the Bernie Sanders supporters are going to be hugely alienated and will sit out the election? Yeah, I heard that David Pluff on TV, he ran uh, Obama's campaign saying the convention would not dare to give the nomination to somebody who did not get the the most uh, delegates and the most popular votes. Yeah, it's hard to imagine that they would, or if they did. I mean, I think that in itself would be another form of suicide. Like, it would be just, uh, uh, yeah, I, I, it's, it's very difficult to imagine. And I think the other reason why it's difficult to imagine is while there are people in the party elite who really dislike Bernie Sanders, the general party doesn't, even among people who don't want to vote for Bernie Sanders and prefer another candidate. Like, he's the sort of, you know, second preferred candidate for the pe- people who don't vote for him. So, like, a lot of uh, Warren voters, but also Joe Biden voters. And so, so you're going to overturn somebody who's got the most pledged delegates and is widely elected among the parties. In fact, has the highest favorability of any Democrat uh, because... The you know this billionaire doesn't like it. I I, I just don't I, I I just don't see how you could do that without like committing political suicide. Jeet here. Read him at thenation dot com. Thank you, Jeet. It's always great to have you on the show. Oh, thank you. Uh, pleasure to talk. Political pundits are supposed to argue in favor of their opinions. That's their job. The rest of us may be confused or uncertain and anxious, but the pundits are full of strong convictions and convincing arguments. Now we're going to depart from that rule and talk to Rick Perlstein. He's been doing a gut check about Bernie. Rick, of course, is the author of the classic book, Nixonland, The Rise of a President and the Fracturing of America. It was a New York Times bestseller, and it was picked as one of the best nonfiction books of the year by over a dozen publications. His most recent book is The Invisible Bridge, The Fall of Nixon and the Rise of Reagan. And in August, I'm happy to say we will get his next one, Reaganland, America's Right Turn, 1976 to 1980. He's the former chief national correspondent for The Village Voice. He's a former online columnist for the New Republican Rolling Stone. His journalism and essays have appeared in The New York Times, Newsweek, and The Nation. We reached him today at home in Chicago. Hi, Rick. Hi, John. Well, you've been a strong voice for years, actually for decades, arguing that a genuinely social democratic politics represents less of a risk for Democrats than trying to find some kind of middle ground. You even wrote a book about that. What was it? It's called The Stock Ticker and the Super Jumbo. It was uh, 2005. I wrote a long essay following the John Kerry defeat for Boston Review. And as they do, they published as a little book. What was your argument at that point? The argument was that basically the Democratic Party has been so addicted to kind of short-term tactical thinking that it appears to the voters to kind of tack all over the place and offer no kind of certitude about what they stood for. And I contrasted that to big ideas, big programs that deliver kind of political value to the Democrats for, you know, even half a century or a century or more coming up on the, the example of something like Social Security. The bottom line is 
what Roosevelt did uh, with Social Security and what, you know, Johnson did with Medicare is the affirmative duty of every Democratic president to create, you know, a big entitlement program that delivers economic security to the middle class. And when they achieve that, kind of set a goal for the next one, expanding the New Deal, you know, kind of completing the New Deal project, as they used to say in the 50s and 60s. And for at least the last five years, you have argued that Bernie Sanders is the person who should run for president. I, I understand that in 2015, you actually begged Bernie's chief of staff to get him to run for president. So when, uh, I think it was a 2015, it might have even been 2014, uh, I was approached by the University of Chicago Magazine, my alma mater, the alumni magazine, to do an article about Bernie Sanders, who was visiting campus. And it was just as people were starting to whisper that he might run for president in 2016. And he you know, came to campus and delivered the message he always delivered to um, something called the Institute of Politics, which was run by uh, David Axelrod, Barack Obama's you know, former uh, conciliary. And uh, I went out to Washington. And after much, much, much effort, it was really hard to get an interview with him because it was very obvious that he just did not care about talking about his past or, you know, helping his <laughs> alma mater or God forbid, talking about what his college experience was like. He was clearly like, you know, so focused on, you know, his goals in the Senate. And I pleaded and pleaded and pleaded and eventually got an interview. And, you know, as I was being kind of walking around the office, uh, I told the chief of staff, God, it would be great if Bernie Sanders runs for president. I hope he does. And then I, you know, did the interview and, actually did, I think, the first article uh, examining in any kind of depth Bernie Sanders' civil rights activism when he was at the University of Chicago in the early 1960s, taking over an administration building. Unfortunately, I didn't get the story because he wasn't really tooting his own horn about it. Getting anything about him was like pulling teeth, uh, getting them to talk about his life and, and, and what his college experience was like. Uh, I didn't get the, the the data point that he had actually been arrested. Now there's a picture of it and people, you know, point to it quite frequently. The one thing he opened up with a tiny little bit was when I asked him if there were any girlfriends and he kind of giggled and said quite a few. So, <laughs> so that was a very interesting experience. And if you look up, you know, that article in the University of Chicago magazine, you can learn about, you know, how he took on the University of Chicago and what he was like in college. And he, he would sit in the basement of Harper Library and read Marx and Freud. And I was like, wow, that's kind of interesting. You don't see too many um, potential presidential candidates admitting to reading Marx. For decades, you've argued that the Democrats should put forward a genuinely social democratic politics. And you're one of the early people who said Bernie should be the candidate to do that. But uh, this week, we're talking before Super Tuesday here, you tweeted, there are so many things about Sanders as a person and a politician that disturb me. This is part of your gut check. What what are they? I, I read the following. It's a real gut check moment. Uh, I've been bitching about the awfulness of the D.C. Democratic establishment and the imperative for the Democrats to transform into a genuinely social democratic party for decades. Now, with Sanders' success, there are intimations of genuine possibilities on these fronts. And yet so many things about Sanders as a person and politician and also the movement around him disturb me, but also so much to be in awe of and admire. Uh, how much of my doubts represent clear thinking and how much fear of actual genuine change? How much is to revive an ancient phrase, a generation gap? How much a reasonable fear that the stakes are too high in 2020 for a high-risk nominee? 
this in light of my arguments, again, going back decades, that a genuinely social democratic politics represents less of a risk for Democrats? Or maybe I should stick with my longstanding conviction that nominating a 78-year-old who's had a heart attack is simple political insanity. So let's take this one step at a time. What are the things about Sanders as a person and a politician that disturb you at this point? About him, you know, I think the age thing is really creepy. I mean, that's one of the reasons I've been a supporter of Elizabeth Warren. She's a little younger. And, you know, I think you need a two-term president these days, especially if you're going to achieve the kind of grand goals that Bernie Sanders has. And, you know, he'd be 87 years old at the end of a second term. And, um, you know, the, the, the stuff about the supporters, you know, I've been in a discussion about that this morning. Uh, a journalist wrote an article about a Sanders staffer who said really nasty things about the other candidates in a private Twitter account. And I wrote a post in solidarity with the journalist. And, you know, people are saying, you know, oh, that trust fund baby deserved worse than he, you know, kind of nonsense. And I, you know, tried to like, you know, make the point. I don't, I don't care if the article is good, bad or different. You know, they had, you know, basically uh, someone basically sabotaged his phone number so he couldn't use it anymore. And, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't like it. And uh, the response uh, has, has been, you know, a lot of mockery, a lot of inside jokes, you know, which I think kind of ill befits a, a mass movement. But the thing of the, the thing of it is, and this is where the historian in me comes in, who's you know been studying social movements, you know, for 25 years and why they succeed and why they fail is is the transition from insurgency to power, and as. Bernie Sanders uh, arrives at a place where he is approaching the nomination or wins the nomination or approaching the presidency or wins the presidency, more and more criticism of things that are not very democratic in temper from his supporters will be made from inside the Sanders coalition. The, The response from his supporters can't just be, you're the enemy, you're a bad person, you just don't get it. You must be in the professional managerial class. There has to be some sort of constructive engagement <laughs> so these people can work together. But I want to ask you about the second part of that sentence. There is so much to uh-huh. be in awe of and admire about Bernie. I mean, obviously, about Bernie Sanders, his consistency in advocating for social democratic values, you know, come hell or come high amazing, and his ability to inspire a mass movement of people behind him and win three primaries in a row. If that had happened in any other year, people would be saying, oh my God, he's, he's uh, the shoe in This is an amazing thing that someone outside the policy consensus of the Democratic Party, who's an outsider to the, to the centers of power in the Democratic Party could do this. It's amazing. And, you know, I love, I love Elizabeth Warren. I think she'd make a great president, but she's not achieving what Bernie Sanders is achieving. And in a democracy, that's what it's all about. My broader frustration uh, that this work comes from transcends to Donald Trump or Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders. It's this idea that you can kind of confidently predict the future that, you know, you're seeing from people in the right wing of the Democratic Party that, of course, Bernie can't win. You're seeing people from the left wing that, of course, Bernie can't lose. And, you know, after 2016, when, you know, election night in New York Times, you know, went from like, you know, 98 percent chance to like, you know, 80 percent chance to 60 percent chance to 0 percent chance of Hillary Clinton winning. I, I think that kind of confidence in a time of great change when all the old rules are being rewritten, rewritten uh, is really untoward. 
to be in a space of uncertainty of not knowing is really the only way to kind of really create a solid analysis. And I think we just have to kind of live our values and do the work right now. That doesn't really add up to any kind of certitude about whether Bernie would be a disaster or Bernie would be a salvation. But you are a data person and the data we have data about right now, of course, not about November 3rd, but the data we have say that Bernie is the best we've got. He beats Trump by the biggest margin in the matchups in the polls. That's true. He's most popular among the Democrats and Democratic leading independents. He's raised by far That's the true. most money from by All far true. the most contributors. We don't have the data from October 2020. We don't know what's going to happen when a candidate, unlike any of the Democratic Party, is really run, you know, is in a general election. You know, we don't have uh, the data of how he's going to ha- hold up to this. We don't have the data over whether his health is going to hold. We don't have the data over what the Republicans know and are going to drop about him. You know, we, we, we can't act just out of fear instead of love, you know, and say we can't risk the things we need as a society just because, you know, we might not get them. But we also have to be, you know, what, what is it, what is it uh, was it Gramsci who said we need uh, pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will. But we also have to kind of hope. There's nothing easy or uh, preordained about what we're talking about now. This has been the Gut Check Radio Hour with Rick Perlstein. Rick, you have broken the mold of punditry today. You've challenged the convention that pundits must be sure they are right. For that and for everything else you do, we thank you. The first cover article I ever wrote for The Nation in 2001 was called Pundits Who Predict the Future Are Always Wrong. It was a moral judgment. <laughs> That's a fantastic line. Thank you, Rick. Thank you. Cheers. The Cold War was fought in many ways. It was a traditional political and military confrontation, but it was also a cultural contest on a global scale And one of the most important arenas in the cultural contest was sports. For that, we turn to Robert Edelman. He teaches Russian history at UC San Diego. His books include an award-winning history of spectator sports in the Soviet Union. And he assembled a winning team of more than a dozen historians to collaborate on research in the history of sport in the Cold War. The fruits of their work are now published in a book titled The Whole World Was Watching, Sport in the Cold War. Bob Edelman, welcome back. It's great to hear you. The U.S. and the USSR always competed in the Olympics starting in 1952, which was the first year the Soviets entered the Olympics. And whoever won the most medals gained immense prestige. Sports, unlike a lot of other East-West cultural competitions, music or film or literature, made it a lot easier to know who was ahead and who was behind. But you say... Different kinds of states produce different kinds of sporting systems. And indeed, the Americans always complained that the Soviet dictatorship had significant advantages in producing top athletes. Is that really true? It's true if you limit the practices of sport to the Olympic Games. In fact, the Olympics were a very distorting kind of uh, terrain or platform for measuring things. So I would argue that the Olympics uh, made the United States look weaker than it really was and the Soviet Union stronger than it really was, despite the preponderance of medal victories uh, in a variety or a number of different Olympic Games. Well, 
American domination, you know, of everything in the world seemed to Americans to be natural and normal. How did they explain losses to the Soviets at the Olympics or defeats at the hands of the East Germans? Cheating. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Was there, how much truth was there to the charge that the East Germans were doping their athletes and that the Soviets were cheating too? Lots of truth. The main complaint, the main issue before the uh, Soviets were allowed into the games was that it was well known, it was no secret that their athletes were being paid. Uh, And the problem with the Olympics is that it's a sporting activity which was at that time restricted to amateurs. And that has roots in Victorian England and the emergence of modern sport, which came from elite public schools. They were called public schools, but they were really private schools. And those sports were things like rugby and cricket and then later soccer that uh, eventually attracted large working class audiences. And in order to limit the uh, rise of this uh, working class sport, the creator of the Olympics, Baron Pierre de Coubertin, created a competition which would only be open to those who could afford to train on their own and had the leisure. So when along come the Soviets, who are in fact supported by either jobs that they don't have to show up for, or their army officers, or sports instructors, or policemen, or students, then they seem to, of course, undermine this notion of the amateur code. So there's a great deal of uncertainty about bringing the Soviets into the Olympics at that particular time. They eventually do. The Olympics people hold their nose because the competition between the Soviet Union and the United States sold tickets and gained attention for their movement, which, of course, expanded enormously in its footprint once the Cold War in sport was joined. And to what extent was international sport during the Cold War a contest between the United States and the Soviet Union that left other countries out of the picture? I would argue that the Olympics are a bad arena for evaluating the sporting activities of any one of these countries. And that I also would also argue that the notion that the Olympics comprised all of Cold War sport is massively insufficient. Among other things, it reaffirms this idea that the Cold War was a bipolar struggle simply between two superpowers. And I am more attracted to the idea that uh, this was a multipolar competition between two globalization projects, capitalism and communism. And those groups, those organizations, those blocks were not entirely monolithic. But the other big problem, of course, is that if you limit the version of sport that you're looking at or the kinds of sports you're looking at to the Olympic competition, you're emphasizing the bipolar Cold War, which was, of course, between the United States and the Soviet Union, between the two superpowers, which was kept cold by nuclear standoff. Now, that, of course, meant that people justified the military confrontation by saying that the Cold War stayed cold because of nuclear war, but it ignores the fact that in the global south, there were literally tens of millions of people who died in proxy wars from Guatemala to Iran to uh, obviously Vietnam, Korea, and other places. So to say that the Cold War was a peaceful time in human history is simply false. One more thing about the Olympics. Part of the politics of the Olympics was, of course, the boycotts. The first Olympics in the Soviet Union was Moscow 1980 in the Western countries 
boycotted those Olympics because of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. Four years later, the Soviets refused to come to Los Angeles. How important were the boycotts and what were the Olympics like when one of the superpowers was missing? Did that create more room for the other countries to compete or did that just make the whole thing less meaningful? Well, it was quite interesting. Obviously, the United States and many other NATO countries did not take part in Moscow in 1980, but Great Britain did. And they had numerous, uh, especially very big successes in track and field. But crazily enough, one of these British English people won the 100 meters, Alan Wells, at the Olympic Games in 1980. So it did create opportunities in 1980 for people who would normally not be on the medal podium. On the other hand, you had a situation in 1984 where Romania, a communist country, chose to participate and came in second in the medal cup, which of course you normally would not have expected outside of fields like gymnastics. So yes, it gave opportunities for others who uh, had not been dominant to find a place. I think we, we have to talk about race, which of course is a huge issue in American sports. And of course, the Cold War was a time not just of the civil rights movement in the United States, but also of decolonization, crumbling empires, wars for independence in what we call the third world. How was that process in international sports during the Cold War? Well, the one thing it was not was the idea that you had this, again, bipolar competition with the third world sitting in a sort of imaginary South Stand deciding who won the pole vault in 1976. That is fantasy where the prime minister of Ghana calls in the minister of agriculture and says, well, what should we do? Should we privatize agriculture or should we collectivize? And the minister of sports says, well, have you checked the sports pages yet? You know? <laughs> Somehow I don't think this happened. But this general notion was that the belief would be that if you had such athletes that seemed so admirable and so uh, attractive, that this would then attract the loyalty and support of the world's citizens and their sympathies, the famous notion of hearts and minds. I don't really feel it worked that way. And to see it that way eliminates the agency of the people in, again, the third world, who, again, as you've said, were people of color. And so the fact that this decolonization project is very much part of what goes on during the Cold War, it's not identical by any means, but it informs and expands the territory of the Cold War enormously. And there, the United States was fighting with two hands behind its back because of its racial issues in the United States, which the Third World was very sensitive to, and which the Soviet bloc constantly reminded the Third World about. Let's talk about boxing. In the popular mind, boxing determines who's the toughest man in the world. And boxing, of course, is an Olympic event. And in 1960, an American named Cassius Clay astounded the world with his boxing skills. And of course, he ended up Muhammad Ali stripped of his title and banned from the sport for refusing to fight in the Vietnam War. Let's talk about the place of Muhammad Ali in world sports. Who had no quarrel with the Viet Cong. Yeah. But he was perceived as not being a Cold War figure until the time he refuses induction into the United States Army and then says this famous quote that I just mentioned. So then at that point, he becomes a Cold War figure. 
And then there's another moment when he's involved in the Cold War, which you mentioned the boycotts, where the Carter administration, so things have changed by this time, in, inducts him or recruits him to travel through Africa to sell the boycott to uh, these newly independent or third world nations. And I think we also have to talk about the media, an indispensable part of Cold War sports. I think the media was in a symbiotic relationship with, in Cold War sports in that they simultaneously exacerbated the tensions and because that sold newspapers and obviously helped television ratings. So I think there was a tendency, especially early on, to uh, emphasize the ways in which these two systems were utterly different, uh, that the Soviet sport athletes were machines, that the Americans were just happy amateurs, especially television later on. Uh, it's essential to giving people stories that they can either take to themselves or accept as being uh, definitive or defining of what the Cold War was about in the largest sense. And there's one thing we have not yet talked about, gender. A great deal of attention was paid to female sports from the very uh, beginning of sporting activity in the Soviet Union as early as the 1920s. When they emerge in 1952, the women's part of their female part of their delegation is immensely successful. And of course, this is at a time when American women have been sort of forced out of the factories that they were in during the war, pigeonholed back into sort of suburban so-called traditional values. And so the gender roles that were evolving, if you can call it that, in the United States were challenged by these women Soviet athletes who were then perceived as Amazons, as being muscular, as being somehow lesbian-like, and maybe even as men dressed up as women. So the kind of famous sobriquet of this was that there were these two sisters, the Tamara and Irina Press. Tamara in particular was very large. She was a weight thrower. And they were referred to not as the Press sisters, but as the Press brothers. Mm. So uh, you can see the misogyny that was generated by the fact that the Soviet Union has built some of their sporting success, literally, dare I say, on the backs of female athletes. But in fact, it was a great contribution. And ironically, that the major challenge to the Soviet Olympic, especially in track and field, uh, success came from poor African-American women in the United States South, and specifically from Tennessee State University in Nashville. The book we've been talking about is The Whole World Was Watching, Sport in the Cold War. And we've been speaking with one of the two co-editors, Robert Edelman. Bob, thanks for talking with us today. Pleasure. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. The theme music for our podcast is by Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. For more principled progressive journalism from the nation, you can subscribe to our print and digital magazine online at thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. 
with this special discount for Start Making Sense listeners. You can get digital access to all of our articles for less than $1.50 a month. You can have our print magazine delivered to you for just 60 cents an issue. Go to thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. You can find out more about the Start Making Sense podcast at thenation.com. And you can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.